Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It's my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Joshua Holland, who is a fellow with the Investigative Fund at the Nation Institute and a contributor to The Nation, who focuses on the intersection of money in politics and inequality. He's also the host of Politics and Reality Radio. Before joining the Investigative Fund, he wrote for Moyers and Company and was a senior writer and editor at Alternet. He also authored The 15 Biggest Lies About the Economy and Everything Else the Right Doesn't Want You to Know About Taxes, Jobs, and Corporate America. Joshua Holland, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me, David. Uh, Thanks for coming on. I invited you uh, specifically because of this uh, video that you've produced that's at The Nation, uh, and I'll have a link up at talknationradio.org, about how people in Denmark are much happier than people in the United States and why. Uh, Can you explain? Well, um, you know, I don't know that we can actually say that the entire happiness of, of the Danes is due to their social democratic system, but I I I, um, I outline in this little video, an animated video, kind of the different experiences that two individuals would have growing up in Denmark um, and in the United States, and I kind of follow them from birth until old age, until their retirement, and what you see is just you know these are. Very different, um, very different expressions of national priorities. How they tax, how they spend, um, the amount that they spend on social goods and services versus the amount that we spend on social goods and services. And you know, they are often the Scandinavian countries are often dismissed as as socialist countries. And when you look at actually the comparison of public and private sector economic output, um, it is certainly true that they have a much a much bigger slice of their of their economy of their of their GDP is in the public sector. But it's not a different system. It's you know a, a, a matter of proportion, a, a, a modest proportional difference. And they're basically capitalist societies. I mean, if you look at, at how they distribute sneakers and, and cars, that's not a socialist system um, where they're giving them out for free. It's, you know, capitalism is the center of their economies, just like it's the center of our economy. But they are, uh, they choose to um, provide much more uh, in return for their tax, they tax more and they return more in social goods. Whereas we are happy to say, well, we're low taxed, but then we have to take out much more from our pockets for those same social goods. And what that does is it creates and reinforces all these inequities because we're not able to all afford the same preschool and the same health care and the same retirement and the same etc., etc., the same infrastructure um, in, in our communities. And they, are, uh, they have decided, uh, as a society, that they were going to invest much more in their own people. So, you know, when you're 
And I give lots of examples of this in the animation. By the way, it's not super wonky. It's very accessible. But, like, you know, every Danish child is enrolled in a preschool. And these are very high-quality preschools, every single one. There's not these, these disparities between wealthy communities and poor communities. And people in Denmark get a child allowance. They get a child credit. Um, it's not a ton of money, but everybody gets it. And it, you know, it helps defray those costs of, uh, of raising kids. They have much more paid vacation than we do. They have much more leisure time than we do. So, you know, again, this comes down to a question of, uh, of our different um, priorities as societies. And I think that their society overall works a lot better and maybe what explains the fact that they are the second most happy people in the world, according to one index, and we are number so the, the, in the United States, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, in the United States, uh, I, on average, you have a lower income and you pay lower taxes, uh, but you also pay state and local taxes, and then you pay fees for everything, and you have to pay for your health care and for your college and for your preschool and for your vacations and so forth. So you don't actually come out ahead uh, despite the big celebration about lower taxes. Is that right? Um, we have slightly higher average income, so, uh, uh, but they're they're comparable. But your your key point here is is absolutely correct. By the time you add taxes and out of pocket social expenses, so you know we're talking health care and education, uh, retirement, taking care of our elderly, perhaps sick parents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, we are spending more of our dollars than they are if you add them together we're right. getting ripped off we don't get as high a quality services and we spend more for them this is really really the key point it's a very effective video because you treat you know the the expected life fortunes of two babies born one in the united states one in denmark uh, and one just gets guaranteed security, peace of mind, gets uh, paid vacation, paid preschool through college, uh, unemployment uh, guarantee of 90% what they were making for two years, uh, health care, pension. It's, I mean, these are things you don't have to worry and fret about uh, if, you're, if you have the good luck to be born in Denmark, right? This is, this is really key, you know, the, the kind of conservative, uh, small-c conservative, uh, well, big-c conservative, if you will, idea of this, you know, fierce individualism that we have, the idea that you have limited government, it is all predicated on the fact, or, or it's somehow predicated on the idea that misfortunes don't happen to good people. So, you know, in a capitalist society, and again, I consider the Scandinavian countries capitalist systems, risk is inherent, right? You and I, we, we, we can be doing fine and we can walk out tomorrow out of our doors and through no fault of our own, we could be hit by a car, piano could drop on our heads, whatever. Risk is inherent in the system. And in our system, we take all of this risk on ourselves. Or not all of it, obviously. We do have a social safety net, but much more of that risk on ourselves. And this causes stress. One of the reasons that 
we're perhaps less happy than others is that we're stressed about making these payments. We're stressed about, can I afford to retire? I mean, my mother is 75. She's been working since she was 18. She just retired last week, and she's actually working part-time. And, and she, couldn't, she didn't have the luxury, uh, for economic reasons, she didn't have the luxury of quitting after 50 years in the workforce. You know, she had to work those extra... 10 years. And um, I I interviewed a a professor of public health at the University of Washington. This is, of course, not in the video. I'm talking about other pieces that I've written. And he was saying that stress is like, it's almost like smoking in terms of the risk factor that it provides for poor health. Um, We're making ourselves sick from stress. It's not only because of the stuff that I talk about in this video, but, but those disparities that we deal with, the lack of economic security that we deal with, is certainly part of it. It seems like in addition to that, when you make uh, government uh, benefits and guarantees universal, you just give everybody uh, the money for when they have a child or the paid uh, family leave or the pension or the vacation, you know, then you, you actually don't uh, have a bigger government, you have a smaller government because you do away with the whole bureaucracy designed to weed out the deserving from the undeserving and who gets this benefit and who doesn't. Everybody just gets it. On top of which, you don't create these divisions and resentments between segments of society. You create cohesion within the society. I think those are two really good points. I I don't know that you ended up spending less, but you have uh, certainly a lot less bureaucracy and and less resentment. that's, That's a key point, you know. I mean, we we have a lot of intra-group resentment in this country, and the idea that that guy's getting something that I'm not getting is central to kind of right-wing grievance politics. And um, they they don't have to deal with that in the same degree because if you're rich, you get the same child credit as if you're poor in Denmark. If you're rich, you get access to the same kind of uh, the same kind of uh, elementary school. All elementary schools in Denmark are first class. There's none of this thing where you go to one neighborhood and you have a good school and you go to another neighborhood and you have a crappy school. Yeah. They're all excellent, top top class. Um, almost everybody goes to uh, public universities in Denmark without paying any tuition. So it it's funny because we think that we're a meritocracy. This is a much truer meritocracy. You have the same opportunities to get ahead right and everyone else and it's on you to to go to college or not go to college and it's it's not that you're you're priced out of that market because of the uh fortune of where you were born or the the misfortune of where you were born it, it does seem though that for the level of taxes all relatively slightly lower but the level of taxes that the united states public pays, we could get something back for them. Uh, And there's a lot of resentment over the fact that we seem to get very little other than an enormous military and a lot of wars. I I mean, how does the Danish public manage to stay so happy without so many wars? (laughs) This is a a decent chunk of it is, is, as you say, military spending. Uh, I, I didn't I don't. I didn't put the numbers in. I actually had in my first draft of the script for this animation. I did have 
this comparison of military spending, and I, I had the little American woman sitting on a nuclear missile in her living room to kind of show how useless this spending is for average people. There's another component, though, here, which is that we, because we have this um, strong trend of anti-governmentalism, a lot of our benefits are hidden. So people don't know that they're getting government subsidies when they pay their mortgage, right? They don't understand that they're getting a government subsidy when they put money in their IRA. A lot of the benefits that we provide, we do through so through the tax code in this kind of sneaky way. And I'm not saying that it's intentionally sneaky. I'm saying people don't think of themselves as getting benefits because of it. And um, Well, they're tax cuts rather than uh, taxes and spending. But tax cuts are spending. I mean, it's the same thing. If I collect your rate, the rate that you are in, mm-hmm. and then I give you back $5, it's the same as if I just yeah, you but, it's, but it's you not universal I mean? spending for everybody. It's it's so spending it's for the people who and, can and buy and a people house. People don't and, understand that they're getting these benefits, and then that feeds this anti-governmentalism. So you don't feel like you're getting much back for your money, even when you are getting something back for your money. Right. The other problem with that is that we're subsidizing the people who least need subsidies. Right. So the U.S. does a lot of spending largely through the tax code, um, but not only through the tax code, but largely through the tax code on wealth development, wealth building activities. And almost all of this goes to people making uh, a decent amount of money. Which probably makes us even less happy as a society on average. It makes because, us less equal, that's for sure. And, and less equality fuels less happiness, uh, according to the studies I've seen. It's a, it's a wonderful video and accompanying article. We'll have the link up at talknationradio.org. Joshua Holland is at The Nation magazine. Uh, thanks very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me, David. Appreciate that. It is my great pleasure now to welcome to Talk Nation Radio, Bryce Covert. Bryce Covert is a contributor at The Nation magazine, where she co-writes The Source, a monthly column on economics, and a contributing op-ed writer at The New York Times. Nevertheless, still a good person. One of her (laughs) recent columns is called, Women Won't Have Equality Until Dads Stay Home. Uh, Bryce Covert, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a great pleasure. So, sorry for the dig at the New York Times there. Uh, <laughs> uh, great uh, column. Uh, we just had your colleague on uh, discussing this video about Denmark, which is, is wonderful, and this sort of relates. What do you mean by dads need to stay home? What I mean basically is talking about um, paid family leave and the fact that just trying to get leave, generally speaking, isn't really going to move the ball far enough for women's equality. Um, you know, there's a lot of hurdles to leap over in the U.S. Um, you know, we are one of very, very few countries in the world that doesn't guarantee any paid family leave for our residents. Um, but just getting past that hurdle and guaranteeing some leave might still not do enough to make sure that women have the chance to advance in their careers and that men have the chance to become fathers and spend time with their children, um, because what we see from a lot of the data is that women are much more likely to take leave when it's just sort of blank, you know, generally available to both parents of both sexes. 
In fact, in your article, you point to a rather innovative uh, approach that Sweden has taken to solving that problem, right? Yeah, so there's some countries that have experimented with what they call daddy quotas, uh, which is basically if, um, these countries tend to have much more generous guaranteed leave policies. In Sweden, for example, it's, it's many months of leave, but they reserve a portion for dads to either use it or lose it. So if dads don't take a certain amount of time off, that the family doesn't get that leave time for someone to be home with the with a new child. Um, and what it's what the data shows is that it increases how much how many men are taking leave, how long they take leave for, and more than that, it act, it also has been shown to have an impact on women. So in Sweden, uh, mothers' incomes have been found to rise seven percent for every month of leave their husbands take. Um, similar things have happened in Quebec, which also has a daddy quota. Um, it increased the time that men spent at home taking care of their children, taking care of the house by 23%, and that in turn had an impact on others being more likely to be employed full-time, working longer hours, and earning more money. So one, when you incentivize men to take leave, um, particularly in the sort of use-it-or-lose-it way, uh, you'll not only sort of push them into this realm of, of staying home and being fathers, but you also then sort of lift the burden more from women who can then go back to work and start earning money again. And, and you suggest in your column that there's actually a, a long-term benefit in terms of quality of, of fatherhood. Is there, is, has this been going on long enough to, to know that? That's, the research so, so far does show that, that if a father takes two or more weeks off, which is not an incredibly long period of time, he ends up, ends up being more involved in his baby's direct care, um, you know, feeding his baby, bathing, changing diapers. Um, and then even later in his child's life, he'll be a more committed father and a more confident father. I don't think it's also um, all that illogical to think that this might be the case. You know, when those first few weeks and months of having a new infant in your life, you're spending a lot of time figuring out how does it all work? How do I take care of my child's needs? What are my child's needs? You're bonding with your child. If fathers are missing out on that critical period, it may be harder for them or more awkward for them to try and come back in later and feel comfortable and feel confident in caring for their children. Do, do you think that what needs to change in the United States is primarily political, that is systemic, that is these policies, or cultural, that is uh, in our culture uh, people are, are in the habit or have the preference uh, or the discriminatory <laughs> preference for uh, men to go to work and women to stay home, or is it some of each? Do they play off each other? I think it's the last. It's, it's both that need to change and they will impact each other. Um, there have been studies that have also shown that when men take, are, when more men are taking leave, it impacts the entire society's view of gender roles. Um, it also has a ripple effect on other men. So a man in a workplace who takes leave to be with his child um, then makes it much more likely that the other men in his workplace will do the same when they have children. Um, so making sure that people can take leave and making it uh, something that they can afford to do and still provide for their family in a gender-neutral way is really important. And then once we start encouraging fathers to do it, it just sort of has this um, momentum that more and more men are likely to take it because it becomes this cultural and societal norm that when a man has a new child, 
he leaves work for a bit to care for that child, and then he comes back. Yeah, and this has a big impact, as you've said, on on the gender pay gap and on careers uh, for women, does it not? So if it became the norm for men, it wouldn't be that men and women both suffer, but that it becomes the norm, right, with perhaps a slight advantage for the childless? Uh, that's the hope. Um, you know, I don't think that we in the U.S. have a great, um, have enough of experience with it to really know what the impact would, on men's careers would be. You know, we only have three states that have operational paid family leave guaranteed programs, um, and then two that are coming online soon, New York and Washington State. That's mm-hmm. not a great sample to know. What are um, the three? Uh, California, New Jersey, and Rhode Island um, have had their programs up and operational for some time. Um, and in California, once it implemented its paid leave program, um, fathers, the amount of time fathers were taking doubled. So that's a good sign that when you offer paid leave, men will actually take advantage of it. And the hope is that when they do, it's not that they will then sort of suffer the pay and promotion consequences that we know that women suffer, but that, like you said, it will become the norm and everybody will be expected to do this so no one will be penalized for it. And in terms of global competition, which is so popular, at least as a concept, uh, this actually is the norm in a lot of countries, right? And productivity in some of those countries seems to to benefit, not suffer. Yeah, well, so out of 185 countries around the world, the U.S. is one of just three that doesn't guarantee maternity leave at all, paid maternity leave. And many of those countries also guarantee paid paternity leave. So if this were some sort of economy-killing thing, I think the entire global economy would be uh, in trouble. And also, you know, Denmark in that video, clear Denmark is an example of a country that has very generous paid family leave um, and often beats us on productivity. Many of the Nordic countries that have these generous benefits do. And even in the U.S., it's been shown that when people take paid leave, it can make them more productive employees. They feel more committed and energized at their work than if they're unable to get away to care for the things in the rest of their lives, and and then their productivity suffers. Yeah. You also write that San Francisco is trying a new experiment along these lines? Yeah. So, like I said, California has, um, is one of the three states that currently offers guaranteed paid family leave. Um, But San Francisco has gone a step further. It's the first U.S. city to require fully paid leave. So in the states that have it right now, you get a percentage of your paycheck and it's capped at a certain level. In San Francisco, they're going to make sure that anyone who takes that time off gets all of their pay while they're gone. And this is really important because it's one thing to know that you can have the time and it's another thing to know that you will get enough money while you're off from work to continue supporting your family and paying your bills. Um, and so if the amount that you can expect is really low, people may not be as likely to take it. They may, they just may not be able to. Um, so we don't know exactly what's going to happen with San Francisco. It's still sort of new um, in terms of going into effect. But the evidence suggests that it will make more people able to take leave. And that will, again, create this culture of people who take time off when, they're, when their children arrive. It seems, though, that when, you know, a country like Finland does an experiment with something like a basic income guarantee, there's an expectation that if it works, they're going to stick with it and expand it, and maybe you'll see it show up in Denmark and Sweden and Norway. Whereas if San Francisco does something and it works brilliantly, 
there really isn't any expectation, I mean, it's virtually zero expectation that the, that the U.S. federal government or state governments are going to pick it up just because it works, right? I mean, we, we, we need a, a massive campaign of public pressure or some other reason for it to be picked up in the United States. We certainly have moved very slowly, particularly in this policy arena. But what's great about having states and cities that are pushing forward on paid family leave and are experimenting with it is that they have served as proof that this is not, in fact, a job-killing or economy-killing policy. Um, none of the businesses, the surveys of businesses in California, New Jersey, and Rhode Island have all shown that businesses like the policy. It hasn't hurt their bottom lines. They're happy to work with it and have their workers be able to take leave. None of those econo- state economies tanked right after they passed it. Um, and they have also shown that people are actually taking it. They're taking time off to be with their families. So they do, in fact, serve as natural experiments that these policies work, um, that they aren't ruinous or overly costly or anything like that. Um, and we are seeing a very slow trickle of adoption. You know, like I said, New York and Washington State have recently passed their own leave programs. D.C. is working on its own program. We may see others come onto line either this year or the next. Um, it's not fast, but I do think you know states learn from each other and are borrowing from those experiences. Wow, I certainly hope you're right. It seems like the we've known for decades that the minimum wage didn't kill jobs, and yet you still have think tanks paid to pretend it does. We've known that single-payer costs less and worked better, that education costs less than prisons, that clean energy works better than dirty energy, and just doesn't seem to impact policy. I mean, so what can we do once we have this evidence and this uh, this proof that it that it works well in certain places? What can we best do to expand it? Well, I think one thing people can do who live in either states that don't have any paid leave program, um, they should be vocal with their local leaders that this is something that they value and that they want to see happen in their own state. Um, those in states who do have programs can lobby to make their programs more generous. New Jersey has been in the midst of a debate over whether and how to make their the amount of time and the amount of money more generous for people who take leave. Um, you need to let your local officials know that this is important to you. I think the all polling shows that paid family leave is incredibly popular among Americans across party lines, but I'm not sure that people make it clear that this is something that they want to see act, you know, proactively, something that they will vote on, something that they will turn out on. Um, if that message comes across, then I think lawmakers are much more likely to act. Is, is there any danger yet of states trying to ban localities from doing it or the feds trying to ban states from doing it? I haven't seen any of that yet. You know, <laughs> perhaps cynically, maybe one reason is that there haven't been a lot of cities that have tried to pass paid family leave on their own. Um, it might be a complicated system to try and set up as a city rather than a state. Um, so I haven't seen much of that. And so far, so good. I have not really seen Congress try to stop states um, from implementing their own programs, although that may be because there's only a small number of them, and if it picks up steam, they might take notice. Um, but I will also say that this issue has lost some of its, bipart- or its partisan divide and has become more bipartisan. Um, you see people like Rubio, um, you know, Ivanka Trump, Republicans who are talking about the need for paid leave. Their proposals may not be, you know, what supporters on the other side would like to see, 
but the there is some movement toward understanding that this is something that American families want and need. With, with like 20 seconds left, are there bills in Congress yet that we should be promoting? Yes. Um, the Family Act has been introduced a number of years now by Kirsten Gillibrand, um, Rosa DeLauro, and another a number of other co-sponsors in Congress. Um, it would ensure 12 weeks of paid family leave across the country, similar to the FMLA. Um, and again, you get a portion of your paycheck up to a certain cap. Um, it would be a pretty, you know, inexpensive and easily implemented plan that would change this whole landscape completely for American families. Bryce Covert, thank you for your work and thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.